and welcome to the first episode of Season 3 of Making It to the Mic, a podcast about how different voice actors got to where they are today. I'm your host, Stephanie Pam Roberts, and I'm so excited to be back with my first guest, Rachel Slotkey. Rachel is a voice actor and casting director who works a lot in the dubbing world, and this week we talk about that area of the business and some current issues surrounding it. If anime and dubbing are things you're interested in, you definitely don't want to miss what Rachel has to say. So let's jump in. Here's my conversation with Rachel Slotkey. Hi, Rachel. How are you tonight? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being our first official guest of season three. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to start out by asking you to tell us about your journey. How did you make it to the mic and what did you do before you were a voice actor? Before I was a voice actor, I was a stage actor. Uh, I got my start in stage acting. I went to college uh, for acting. I got my Bachelor of Fine Arts uh, from Syracuse University. I went to Ithaca. Oh, neighbors! Uh, so yes, yeah, so I was up there in uh, upstate New York for four years in the tundra. And uh, while I was there, I you know, did my semester abroad in London. And in London, uh, Syracuse has like a partnership program with uh, the Globe Theater. And so I was able to take classes at the Globe and really fell in love with Shakespeare uh, during that time. And I came back, uh, came back to school and was like, yeah, this is this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to moved to New York City and I'm going to pursue Shakespeare and, you know, be a Shakespearean actress. And I got to New York and very quickly the numbers did not quite add up. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I tend to be pretty practical. Uh, so I was looking at it and I was like, huh, okay, there are this many shows, there are this many young female roles, and it didn't make sense uh, for an entire career that I was hoping to, you know, support myself with. So I uh, was in New York City and uh, I actually got this grant uh, to produce an off-Broadway show and I had these amazing mentors and yeah, we were trying out, you know, it was some college friends uh, and again, another like Syracuse program and that was my first uh, foray into producing Uh, and, and that was really like grad school for me. Because they were kind of like, here you go, here's a theater, and oh wow, you know, we'll give you advice, but make it work. <laughs> um, yes, very trial by fire, but uh, that was, you know, you you do learn that way. So uh, so we were, you know, producing this off Broadway show, and then my friends and I decided to start this nonprofit theater production company in New York, and you know, we were producing a lot of our own works, and then we got into producing short films. And it was the short films that I looked at and was like, oh, there's this whole post-production process. And that was the first time that I really looked at, you know, the whole picture and learned about audio, the existence of voiceover and sound as a career. Uh, Because in college, you know, for acting school, they certainly don't or they didn't, at least when I was in school, really talk about voiceover or this part of the industry much at all. Yeah, same. Maybe maybe one class, you know, one workshop. Uh, I think it was on audiobooks that we had someone come in and speak. But that was the, you know, the extent of it. And uh, I had no idea. It was this massive, massive industry. So w- when I started to, um, so once I found out about the existence of voiceover, then I was like, okay, well, you know, I hear commercial voiceover is kind of a good way to make money as an actress. And 
At the time, I was doing various day jobs in New York, you know, as a waitress, and I made a terrible waitress. So I was looking for other ways to make money, um, and ideally within, you know, the in- industry that I was interested in. So I, you know, found some voiceover coaches and started training and eventually made some demos, and I, I knew it was going to cost a little bit to, to get started. Uh, so I, I, you know, I put a little bit of money in and was like, you know what, let's let's try this for a year. And if I see some kind of return on it, then, you know, let's keep going and see what happens. But um, but it did. It, it started going pretty well, pretty quickly. And then I had worked at uh, I worked actually for Syracuse University in New York City as a receptionist. Um, much better day job than a waitress, which was exhausting. Um, and while I was there, you know, I had a really supportive uh, boss at that day job who I would go and run on auditions, you know, during my lunch break. And uh, so I I actually taught myself how to audio engineer just off of YouTube videos. Um, you know, and this was kind of like not the beginning of home studios. I mean, we're talking before COVID. Uh, so there were definitely home studios around, but the popularity was starting to pick up. So I was like, okay, I think I think this might give me a competitive advantage if I you know, if I can have my audio sounding pretty good. So I, you know, delved into YouTube, YouTube Academy, and, uh, you know, just tried to, to learn. And uh, a connection had uh, mentioned a dubbing studio was hiring a production assistant, and they got me an interview. And then at that job, that was kind of like the first time I was like, oh, you know what, I can have a day job that is very much in this industry. And then it began to be a bit of like a symbiotic relationship. I had that stability, which was important for me, but I was still able to have the flexibility. And more importantly, I was learning and getting better by being around, you know, that kind of work. So I was, you know, organizing cables and uh, eventually I, you know, I audio engineered uh, some sessions as well. And this was a small boutique company in New York. Uh, so so we wear, wore a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to explore a lot of different uh, elements of production, different passions and interests. And that was really where I really learned all the nuances of the dubbing industry. Kind of like producing Off-Broadway, where I was just kind of thrown in. It was a similar situation. You just go in and you just do it. And in doing it, that's how you learn how to do it. So uh, it was really at that studio that I, you know, tried production coordinating, casting assisting, project managing, you know, kind of the works. By the time I was there for a few years, uh, you know, I had tried a lot of different things and kind of came to realize that the part that I was most interested in was the casting element. It was the most creatively fulfilling to me. I love, 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 love listening to people's auditions. It is the greatest lesson in my own audition technique. You know, just listening to what people do really well, what people, you know, when people aren't missing the mark. Mm. Uh, And I found that, you know, it it really did complement one another. Uh, Because of my experience in front of the mic, you know, I, I try to put that into when I'm writing sides. I'm like, okay, what's going to be really useful for an actor to have? So I, I do think it helps. And I when I'm listening to it, I am listening 
I'm really listening for the performance. Uh, so then eventually I moved from New York City, thanks to COVID, to L.A. Uh, for some sunshine and more space, essentially for a home office. <laughs> um, I was sick of working in my closet. It was a great closet, you know, it did me, it did me well. Uh, I'll miss that New York closet, but uh, now I'm in L.A. and, you know, I have a home office and a booth and I'm working from home and it's like a, you know, a nice place to work. So I got a job at a dubbing studio in L.A. and they hired me originally just for one project to cast and coordinate, which is something that I'd done many times before. Uh, to cast and coordinate an anime dub. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take on just, like, the one project. So I did the one project, and I really like this company. And my the person that hired me afterwards was like, okay, well, you know, dubbing is really, really taking off, especially after COVID. So we have so, so much work. To which I said, well, here's the capacity that I have, knowing that I also work as a voice actor. I said, here's the capacity I have. What what do you need? Do you need a coordinator? Do you need a casting? You know, you're ex- you're expanding. I have these different skill sets. You know, where do we where do we align? And like a good boss, uh, his question was, well, what are you most interested in? Mm. And I said, well, I'm really most interested in casting. You know, I I could really do without the scheduling, the constantly putting out fires of production. I was a little burnt out from that. It's a, it's a lot. Those <laughs> those production coordinators and the people that are booking are really putting in a lot of hard work. You know, so I said, yeah, I, you know, the casting part is the most creatively fulfilling to me. And he said, great. So let's let's just have you do casting then. And because uh, they, they didn't have a casting director at the time. They were just outsourcing, you know, on a project by project basis. So they started giving me just, you know, all the projects that I kind of could take. And then if I was at capacity, I would say, sorry, I'm at capacity. And then they would outsource the next project to someone else. Uh, But then I was able to maintain kind of that flexibility. And again, it's a recording studio. They get it. They get that I'm also a voice actor. They understand that schedule, that lifestyle. And I, I think they see the value of having someone that has that experience I like to say that I'm working in front of the mic and behind the mic. So my experience in front of the mic informs my, you know, decision making behind it and vice versa. So now I'm with that studio uh, in L.A. My, you know, I've whittled down my production time focus on just casting. Um, and I am doing my own voice acting work as well, which is, you know, still going going well and I'm I'm very lucky that I am able to do both. The value that I get from the casting work, a lot of it is, you know, I'm building really organic relationships with people in the industry because a casting director is emailing agents and working with directors and producers. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting to know all these directors, producers, agents. Um, You know, I I, I do have to really maintain some professional integrity. You know, you don't want to go in there and be like, hi, I'm a voice actor. Hire me. Right. Um, You know, there are agents that I have worked with as a casting director for years now who I'm pretty sure have no idea that I'm a voice actor. Because when I'm in that seat, that's the job that I'm doing. I've definitely seen the benefits in front of the mic by working behind it. Yeah. 
That's awesome. I love that you kind of had two instances that paralleled each other with your off-Broadway and then how that translated to your voiceover work as well. So I'd love to kind of, for a second, just talk about dubbing. What is dubbing for those people who are new or who are in voiceover but not familiar with that genre? What, what is dubbing and, and how, you know, how does it differ from some of the other areas of voiceover? Sure. So dubbing, uh, you have a piece of media project that exists first in a different language, and we replace that audio with English. So some examples of dubs, you know, there's, uh, you can have dubs of live action shows like Squid Games uh, is kind of the prime example I like to use for what a live action dub is. Mm, mm -hmm. Uh, Then you have your anime dubs, which is like Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh!, there are, you know, you could dub a documentary, you could dub a instructional video, anything that you have in one language that you want to localize in various languages. Uh, that's essentially what dubbing is. So, so we have to, you know, we are both matching the performance of the, orig- the original, and then we're also trying to match the mouth flaps. So you're working to video versus traditional voiceover. Often you're not, you know, working to picture. Right, right. And... For you as a casting director, when you kind of put that hat on, what does stand out to you in an audition? You know, let's say it's, I mean, I guess it's different from e- for each part of dubbing, like something, you know, live action is going to be different than what you're looking for for an anime. But I'm curious, like when you listen through, what makes you kind of put it into a yes pile and what makes you go, eh, not so much? Really, it's it's about the performance there's a lot of people that go into it and are like, yeah, I want to be an anime star. And they do like some crazy voice. And that's great. But really what it comes down to is it's scene work. It's your acting 101 work that that's surprisingly, it's, it's the basics that stand out the most. You know, what is your proximity to your scene partner? Are they 10 feet away from you or are they is it an intimate scene? You know, and then how do you create that intimacy and that environment with just your voice? Um, you know, what What do you want from the other person? What are your circumstances? You know, do you have, are, are you trying to get something? Are you changing tactics? It's, like I said, just the scene work 101. Those are the ones that stand out because they they feel motivated and they feel honest. I love that. I think we forget that sometimes, especially when it's something that we grew up watching. Like if you want to be, you know, a, a voice actor in animation and you grew up watching animation, it's like it's it's like so personal that sometimes we forget about like the acting side of it and the necessity to to create those moments in in the uh, in the sides, because I'm sure or maybe you can talk about what you put in sides and why are you giving actors like little challenges of like a scene where they're giving a speech and then a scene where they're like whispering behind a bleachers or, you know, something like that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely do try to pick scenes that are in contrast to one another. Like you said, something more intimate or something with higher stakes um, so that I can hear a nice range. I, I try to give the actors as much information as possible if there's because it's a dub it exists already. Mm-hmm. So if there's a trailer, I'm going to attach the link to the trailer. That being said, I'm amazed at how many actors don't Google the project that they're auditioning for because often the trailer does exist. And then if you're lucky, 
the character that you're auditioning for is in that trailer and you can hear what their voice sounds like. And how closely do you want people? Is it like a real voice match or you're just looking for an energy or kind of what? So it depends on the client. Uh, I personally don't care to match it exactly. I would much rather focus on, you know, who's giving the the strongest performance. But it also needs to sound like it's coming out of the mouth of that person. I do use the original as a roadmap, but at the end of the day, I'm I personally am not looking for an exact match. Uh, but some sometimes the clients will really push for that. That makes sense, I guess. That it has to feel like like the integrity of the character is still there. Yeah, and it has to sound. You know, your face is you know the way that sound works. It's resonating off of you know the hard and soft surfaces of your face. So the structure of the person's face is going to influence the sound. So as long as it, you know, you just want it to be a little bit simpatico so it does flow and and seem like you're like, yeah, that sounds like that person looks. Yeah, that makes total sense. And so I know before we, you know, we came on and we've been emailing back and forth, I know there's a lot going on in the dubbing world right now in terms of uh, the merger and fair pay and all of that. So do you want to give us like a quick rundown of kind of what's what's going on is, you know, especially if people are listening that are kind of interested in getting into that world, you know, kind of what to uh, what to know about what's happening in this moment? It's an interesting time, uh, a time of change. So what dubs are have and their popularity have really grown um, and unfortunately, the way that the rates have been structured have not grown with the evolving landscape and, and the amount of attention and, honestly, money that is being put into and being made um, from anime movies that have gone very, very mainstream. So now the community is trying to backtrack a little bit. And we're like, hold on. Um this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Dubbing is the lowest paying genre of voiceover by far, and it t- requires the most skill. Hmm. However, there is no shortage of people that would love to be an anime star. So some of these companies have gotten, you know, maybe some anime fans to uh, try voice acting and they weren't exactly paid a professional rate Um, And again, these large anime studios were based in right-to-work states, which is a whole other level of complication because right-to-work states don't have a lot of union density. There's not a lot of oversight. So it's easy for, uh, how do I put this? You have to take a little bit more accountability to kind of watch yourself and watch your career and and really take care of yourself because you don't have a larger organization that's doing that for you, which is, right, what the union does. Because these projects are producing these massive, massive movies and franchises, they're producing them non-union and paying an hourly rate that doesn't even account for the usage, right? You traditionally in other genres of voiceover, you get your session rate plus a usage rate. So... Now the community is starting to come together, communicating with SAG to update these contracts. However, these studios also need to agree to actually use these contracts. So once the contracts are, you know, in a place that everyone 
you know, feels better about them. One of the the big hurdles is to get these giant corporations to agree to actually use the contracts. Um, you know, and and they don't have a lot of incentive to because, like I said, they're based in a right to work state and they're able to get talent off the street. Yeah. It sounds so much like kind of a lot of different areas of voiceover. Like, I feel like we could be having this conversation about like people who work on Fiverr or, you know, and do national commercials for $100 and then call it a day. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I feel like in general, I don't know. I don't know what the turning point was, but I feel like when I started, which was like 10 years ago, I didn't know a thing about anything about rates uh, in any genre. I was just taking guesses, wild guesses. If it wasn't something from an agent, I was like, um, I don't know. That seems okay. $200? Sure, that pays my electric bill for this month. That sounds great. And somewhere along the the way, you know, I think fueled by the GVAA rate guide, which I will link in the show notes, and, you know, kind of these other little milestones along the way, everybody's kind of realizing, oh, wait a minute, we we need to we need to revisit this or we need to kind of have a a more standard, higher pay scale for certain things that than we had in the past. Like SAG commercials, you know, that obviously is its own thing, but those are set rates, whereas like the the non-union commercials, it's the wild, wild west still. Right. And sometimes even agents, some agents will even send some auditions where the the usage is not so great. So you can't always depend, you know, it completely depends on who you're with. A lot of times you can trust your agent, you know, but there are some agents you you have to still read the usage on that non-union, you know, breakdown because it's not always something I would personally sign up for. We're at a time, not just in voiceover, but in the U.S., right? We have like the great resignation. It is a time of, of labor change. With COVID, everything changed. Yeah. And... I think a lot more people started to realize their value, the way that the world and things are structured is not working. And people are ready to to change and to fight and to stand up for themselves um, to get what they, you know, what they deserve. And with voiceover, like I said before, it's an investment. It is a, it's a financial investment, especially now. Oh, my goodness. Like you are spending, I mean, minimum $1,000, right? one to ten thousand dollars for your mic if you're going to get a booth um it's expensive and a lot of times we're giving that away for free to these companies and we're not seeing appropriate compensation even just for the voice work um despite all that and despite that we're also our own audio engineers a lot of the time and and yeah so people i think um like you said the gvaa rate guide is an amazing resource there are some really great Facebook groups. Um, the community just speaking and being transparent, I think, is helping. And that's all social media, right? Yeah, social media. Yeah. Well, so before, again, before COVID, voice actors were really passing ships in the night. We would see each other if, you know, uh, when one person is coming out of the booth and you're going in the booth next. That would be kind of the only time, again, going back to like animation, let's say you're in a show. That would be the only time you saw a castmate. And then you wouldn't even know who else is in the cast, which makes negotiating really tricky when you don't even know who else to talk to about what rate are you getting, what rate are you asking for. And again, because a lot of times entire casts are 
paid the same. Not always when you're, you know, working with celebrities or something like that, but especially in dubbing, usually everyone's paid the same. So if there's going to be a raise, everyone's going to get a raise. The isolation made it more difficult for people to to know what was normal, to know what they could ask for. Um, and then since that went away and we all, you know, flocked online during COVID to get some semblance of human connection, mm-hmm. that's when we all actually started talking. Hmm. Interesting. And then we're like, oh, a studio in, in Texas were paying tiered rates. So they were paying some actors $35 an hour, which is insanely low. Ooh. Yeah. And again, I it's so hard when I talk about the hourly rate because the next number would be 50 and then they would pay 75. Now, just a barista, 50 or $75 an hour sounds great. Right. But we're talking about the usage. The usage is supposed to be wrapped up in that rate and it's barely. So there are these, you know, movies that are making millions of dollars and the, these actors get no residuals and they made 150 bucks. And that's it. Wow. So, yes, you, you are being compensated well for your time, but you're not being compensated, arguably, at all for the usage. And I, that translates to the commercial stuff, too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, especially on some of the pay-to-play sites, it'll say, you know, a commercial for, you know, a major big box retailer, let's say, and they, you know, one 30-second commercial, $1,500, and you're like, oh, Okay, $1,500. I could use that. Right. And then it says, you know, usage in perpetuity. And you're like, no. Yeah, no. (sighs) Yeah. And it's that's why, like I said, that transparency. um, I think it's great that, you know, you're doing these kind of podcasts to help educate more people because we do. We have to take it upon ourselves to to take work that we deem fair. And the way to deem it fair is to understand the industry and everything that goes into it. Yeah. And I think, too, sometimes people who are starting out are like, oh, I can't charge that. Like Mm -hmm. the GVAA says that for that commercial, I should be charging, I don't know, whatever it is, like $5,000 like for a year. Like I can't charge that. But I feel like when we, as Maria Pendolino likes to say, a rising tide lifts all boats. Oh, I love that saying. And it's so true because, you know, if I started dubbing, I've done very little in that realm. And if I started dubbing tomorrow, I need to approach it as a professional voice actor and get, you know, the the rate that the going rate, quote unquote, you know, the fair rate, because otherwise everybody else is just it's just lowering everybody else, too. Right. And just because you're newer doesn't mean you should get paid less. I think especially if you come from the acting world and the musical theater world, like you're a professional, you have the skill set. So it translates. It's okay to ask for the fair rates. Right. Well, but that's the other thing, too, coming from that world. A lot of the time it's, you know, you just want to do the art. Well, that's true. Yeah. But if you're doing it for a major network or a major company, no, (laughs) there is value in what you are bringing and you should be compensated for that value, especially these huge, huge corporations. Is any of it SAG? Yes. And since the community has come together and been more transparent and actually speaking with their castmates, we have seen a lot more union density. A lot more projects are being flipped. Uh, Specifically, there's the Netflix dubbing agreement. Netflix created a special deal with SAG to create a contract just for them, a streaming contract. 
and it actually does include a 50% buyout for usage. So you have your base hourly rate plus 50%, and that is your buyout. So Netflix created this agreement with SAG, and now every single Netflix dub is union, which is a lot of dubs. Hmm. Netflix is on a mission to localize, you know, in all of their content in hundreds of languages. So that's a lot of dubs. Unfortunately, there's a little bit of a loophole. Let's say something was produced non-union and then licensed or sold to Netflix after it's made. Let's say Netflix didn't, you know, if Netflix isn't producing it, but a third-party company then sells it to Netflix, it could have been produced non-union, which is another reason why as actors we kind of have to protect ourselves. Anything that we work on, we have to think this could go to Netflix, this could go to HBO Max, this could air on Cartoon Network. I know so, so many actors who have done non-union animation work under the pretense that it's, you know, it's a small animation studio in Korea. They, you know, just barely got funding together. Um, you know, we can pay 75 an hour. We're going to give you a two-hour minimum. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess that's okay. And then you do it, and then later it's, you know, on, on network television. I feel like not knowing much about this genre myself, I'm like, oh, man, like I'm a little, I feel like a little. I know, it's disheartening, right? Not disheartening. It's almost like just overwhelming isn't maybe the right word, but just like Mm. a little overwhelming to think like, oh, gosh, like how do I protect myself? And if this is something I really, really want to do and really want to get into kind of what what are the red flags to look out for? And what should I what should we, you know, be thinking about in terms of kind of the stuff that you just mentioned? Well, again, that's why talking is is really great. Um, Knowing the the union contracts, much like the GVAA rate guide, the union contracts are kind of the guiding point. So the non-union, you know, if you're going to take non-union work, it should pay equal or more than the union work. Because the union work, the producers are also paying, you know, health and pension and all this stuff. So it's actually costing them more. Right. So to equal it out, because if you're not, you know, you've got to pay into your own health insurance now, you should be compensated the same, if not more, than a union contract. Um, so, for example, the Netflix dubbing agreement with the base rate and the 50% buyout, it's 130 50 an hour with a two-hour minimum, up from, like I said, around 75 You know, knowing those rates, um, like I said, the two-hour minimum is baked into the union contracts. Unfortunately, there are some studios that will try to pay per queue, like per loop is another term for it, but not have a minimum. So then you're doing five lines and maybe making five dollars. And I recently heard from someone that's been doing this for a very long time that a studio was doing that or, you know, starting to try to do that. That's when the actors have to stand up and say, nope, I'm not going to do that. But we have seen a lot of examples of actors doing that and then they get what they are asking for. You know, there was recently, um, was it Marvelous Ladybug? And it, it was only a couple actors, only like three actors on that show said, hey, the show is really popular. We are not getting paid enough. And the studio said, well, uh, this is the rate. And if you don't like it, we will recast you. Mm. And these actors said, OK, go for it. That's very brave. Yeah, right. <laughs> Props. Uh, they took to social media. I mean, that's so scary, right? So scary, especially to only be one of a couple people. And it's this big franchise that, you know, so they did that. 
And then they went on social media and put out messages to their fans and said, hey, you might not hear me on the next season. And here's why. The fans did their thing, kind of blew it up on Twitter uh, and got the attention of the creator of the show. And now the creator hires these different dub studios in, you know, various countries. So a lot of the times the creators don't even know. They're just like, oh, yeah, here, here, studio, here's the budget. You're make it work. And then the studio makes it work and they will cut corners to make it work. So then those negotiations, you know, that that's why they sometimes end up that way. So these actors said, nope, we're not going to do it. Go ahead. Replace us. Then they told their fans, yep, we're going to be replaced because, uh, you know, we negotiations. Then the owner of the studio reached out to those talent and they had an open conversation and the entire cast got a raise, a significant raise. Wow. All from three actors standing up. So it didn't even take the whole cast. It just took three actors. Good for those actors. And also, you're welcome for the people who didn't. No kidding, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. And again, like back to like that that theater mindset. Maybe it's not just theater. Maybe it's every profession. But I don't know because I'm I haven't been in other professions. But that mindset of like, I have to take the work. I can't say no to the work. Mm-hmm. Like the scarcity mindset, I guess, in general. Yes. Yeah, that's a tough place to live. Yeah. Well, thank you for shedding light on that. I know that's it's a ever evolving. So as of this podcast airing in April of 2022, this is the information that we know at this time. And that's relevant. Thank you for that disclaimer. <laughs> that's very accurate. It is very evolving. Um, the community is talking and things are changing rapidly for the better, I I think. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to know kind of your maybe you could put your casting director hat back on. Your favorite piece of advice to give to people, especially if they want to get into dubbing, kind of are there classes to take or, you know, just ways to practice or, you know, anything like that? Yeah. So uh, dubbing is I mean, I look at it like it's really advanced voiceover meets advanced acting. So first and foremost, I recommend scene work classes, your traditional scene work classes. A lot of voice people who come into dubbing from the commercial or promo voiceover world have a harder time, you know, breaking down a scene. And especially with dubbing, because you are, once you're in the booth, you get almost no context and you're essentially improving, you know, you're doing it right on the spot. So you have to be able to pull that who, what, where, when, why, immediately make bold choices, you know, second nature. The best dubbers are the best actors, I think. Of course, you want some vocal flexibility. A lot of times, like I mentioned, there is a two-hour minimum often. So what producers will do to maximize their budget is they'll hire, you know, one actor to do multiple parts to utilize, you know, the full two hours. So you can, you know, get a lot of work if you are really versatile. Uh, So I would, you know, work on playing your instrument, those scene study classes. And, you know, you could turn your subtitles on. You know, if you're watching a show and just talk, talk along, you know, kind of see, turn the volume off and the subtitles on and just talk along and see, you know, how the mouth is kind of moving. Pay attention to different mouth shapes. You know, if someone's really not moving their mouth much, you also don't want to be making a whole lot of sound or over articulating. So just, you know, observing those kind of things. Yeah. 
I love that because you don't really get the script beforehand. You just sort of get thrown in and then they there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's big confidentiality thing. So you yeah, you, you really don't get the script. I was in a session uh, earlier this week and I was telling the director, I'm like, wow, this is the best improv practice you could ever get. You just have to release, <laughs> release everything and trust and go. And so so because of that, you really need to rely on your technique. So you really need that foundation, uh, which is why I say it's advanced acting, advanced um, voiceover. It's it's not something I would recommend for a beginner voice actor or a beginner actor. I would recommend really honing those chops and then then trying it. Yeah, because you have to sort of split your focus. You're sort of watching and reading and making acting choices all on the fly. Yeah, I say it's like rubbing your stomach, patting your head, jumping on one foot and reciting the alphabet backwards. What what voice are you doing? So you have to maintain your voice. You have to, you know, fit the flaps, get the timing, look at both the script and the video. And then on top of that, make your acting choices. <laughs> so, yeah, having that instinctual so that you can just rely on it, I think, is really important. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. This was a, a real great insight into an area of voiceover that is, I think, one that people really want to get into not maybe not the live dubs but the anime stuff for sure and um and this was such a great insight into kind of the behind the scenes and the you know kind of current event stuff that's important to keep in mind well great i'm glad uh glad i could share what i know and uh thank you for having me i'm so grateful for rachel coming on to share her knowledge and perspective as I've talked about with several other guests, fair rates in voiceover are so important, even if you're just starting out or entering into a new genre. And I love that we got a little insight into what she looks for in auditions as a casting director in this field as well. If you'd like to learn more about Rachel, I'm linking her website and socials in the show notes, which you can find at my website, makingittothemic.com. P.S. She also has a talking dog, which is amazing, and you should check that out on Instagram too. Please make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening now so you don't miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, and here's a little preview of next week's episode. And if you get to that place, you're never competing with anyone else for a role. You're only competing with yourself to be the most authentic you that you can be. That's next time on Making It to the Mic.